Again, this is Matthew 14, uh, 22 through 36. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. We've been in Matthew for a year and a half or so. We're reaching that halfway point, so we're getting close to uh, you know, another year and a half left. So um, just a quick word about why we, we go through books of the Bible here is because we believe the Bible to be the best thing for us. Um, as far as growing in our understanding of who Christ is, growing our understanding of how we can uh, be both convicted and taught. Uh, it, it convicts, it trains us in righteousness. And so um, the best thing we believe is that we just pick a book and go through it and let the Lord do his work um, as we go through. So that's, that's kind of why we're going through. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in to, uh, to Matthew 14. One other thing I'd like to say before, we, before I jump in, I wasn't here last week. Uh, Jack preached last week for me. And I just encourage you, if you weren't here last week to hear that sermon, go to iTunes and download it. It was, it was very, very good. It was very helpful on how we take the gospel, the, the gospel that saves us, the gospel that justifies us, the gospel that declares us righteous, and how that informs the way we grow in our holiness, the way we grow in our Christ-likeness for the rest of our life. It's not through white-knuckling, not through trying harder, but instead the gospel that saves is the same thing, that gospel that sanctifies. And, and, and Jack did just an amazing job last week explaining how all those things work. Really um, a lot of application as well. So I just encourage you to, to jump or go find that on iTunes and, and download that. It's a, it's a must-listen. It's so, so good. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be in Matthew starting... Uh, chapter fourteen twenty two. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can open up your word, and we know, <coughs> Lord, that um, when we come to your word, that because the Holy Spirit uh, inspired it to be written, and the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us, that we are desperate for your presence. We're not desperate for my presence at all. We're desperate for your presence. And so would you come now and speak through me mightily, as well as, Lord, um, open all of our hearts and minds, including my own, to what you want us to hear. Amaze us 
with just how glorious Christ is this morning. Show us just how tremendously worthy of worship He is. Help me, Lord, speak truth. Help me be accurate in the things that I say. And may um, you just be amazing in this room and in this church this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as we've been going through the book of Matthew... Um, section by section, sometimes a chapter or two at a time. Each one of those chapters or two chapters kind of has its own little section title. And so really the very end of 13 and 14 and 15 and just a tiny little sliver of 16 uh, chapters, those chapters, has a big title called Identity Revealed. And so Jesus has been steadily kind of revealing himself more. We've got a good idea of who Jesus is now. We've seen that somewhat in the first 14 chapters. And now he's really starting to um, reveal who he is. Uh, And so what we've seen just over the last couple weeks as we've looked through this, in uh, the very first part of chapter 14, Jesus reveals himself as prophet. And there in 13 through 21, in that very familiar story where he feeds 5,000, Jesus is revealing himself in his identity as the supplier and the healer. And now as we're going into 22 and on, he's going to reveal himself as king. The central point of this text that we're looking at in 22 through 36 really lies right there in verse 33. Um, And I'm just going to show you that. We're going to come back to it. But you can see it says, and those in the boat worshipped him. And so... He's revealing himself here as the one who is worthy of worship. That's the whole point of what we're going to be seeing here. And that he is the king that is worthy of worship. Now, the, the thing that we need to think about and the thing that's important as we think about the fact that Jesus is the one who's worthy of worship, a little self-reflection needs to take place, which is every single person in this room is a worshiper. Since he's worthy of worship... And every single person in this room is a worshiper. The question is, what is the object of your worship? Who or what are you worshiping? Is it Christ or is it something else? At young ages, we're taught to worship. Um, I've learned this kind of the hard way with my child. I've got four, but my third, his name's Aiden, he's four years old. Um, We've introduced him into the iPod. And really, we just download some games, some free little games. You know, he doesn't know that the good ones are the ones that cost money. So we download the free ones and we let him play the iPod every once in a while. Um, and so one morning, uh, not even morning, one middle of the night, uh, I was in bed. It was 2.30 in the morning, and we were asleep. And our living room's right outside my bedroom. And at 2.30 in the morning, I hear noises. And I, I'm trying to figure out, I don't know what it is. And I walk out there, and in the complete darkness, <laughs> my four-year-old sitting on the couch with the iPod in his hand, completely dark. It's just a glow coming from the couch. And I'm like, he's playing. I walk up, and he's playing again. I'm like, what you doing, buddy? playing the iPod, and I'm like, Aiden, it's 2.30 in the morning, you, you gotta, you gotta go to bed, it's, it's not time to get up yet, so I take it from him, and immediately, he bursts into tears, because the object of his worship, that iPod, at 2.30 in the morning, has been taken away from him, and the point is, at very young ages, we're already worshiping, and so, what we're seeing here is, since Jesus is the one who's worthy of our worship, every single one of us, even at young ages, are are worshiping something. So what is the object? And I'm hoping that as we see this, we're going to see in this text that Jesus is the king. And I'm hoping that as we see that he's the king, since he's the king and he's worthy of worship, we're going to see five reasons in this text why Jesus is the one who's worthy of your worship and nothing else. Nothing trivial, nothing created, but only the creator. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to see um, that right there in the very first. Let's, let's remember 
because uh, since it's been a couple weeks, <clears throat> in verse 21, what just happened? Jesus just fed 5,000 men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people. You see that in 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so that's, that just happened. And then John, uh, not John, Matthew, Matthew is going to use this word immediately. Now, he's going to use this a few times in this text, and I'm going to show you why he's wanting to show this immediacy, uh, because there's, there's something going on. But right here, he says, immediately he made, that's Jesus, made the disciples. This word made is compelled or constrained. This is a, this is a strong word where he is heavily trying to talk them into, and they're going to do it, uh, go get in the boat. And so it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So everybody ate, it's time to fellowship, it's time to hang out, and Jesus is having none of that. No, we're not having any fellowship time here. As a matter of fact, all you, all you 5,000 men, and y'all get up and get out of here. Disciples, get in the boat and go. It's time, everybody get out, get out, get out, get out. He's trying to rush them out. So we need to think, what is it that's making Jesus say, all right, everybody get out of here. Well, first of all, we know it's the, the end of the day. It's starting to get to be the end of the day. But um, John, chapter 6, Matthew and Mark and John all record what's going on here. This, those, those three gospel writers record what's going on. And John gives us a little bit of insight in what's compelling Jesus to want to send them away really fast. In John, uh, chapter 6, verses 15, uh, or verse 15, this is what he says. He says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And Jesus is king. There's no question about it. He's the king right now. But at this particular time, these people had just had their bellies full. And they're thinking, this Jesus is the man. So in 6.15 it says, perceiving that they're coming to try to make him by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he is making them go. They're thinking... Forget Herod, the one who puts large taxes on our back, takes our monies, and we go to bed every night hungry. Forget that. This guy, Jesus, he's not taking any of our money, and we have our bellies full. This is the one that we want. We don't want Herod to be our king. We want Jesus to be our king because he is the one who will make us rich one day and put food in our belly. Now, he is the one that makes us rich, not the way they're thinking. He is the one that we will have a final marriage supper with um, in, in Revelation where we will be with him and have that great meal with him. But Jesus here is saying it's not time yet. He is the king, but it's not time for him to be king. So immediately he dismisses him. He knows that they, they, they're saying, we want you to be king right now. So he's like, no, not right now. It's not time. It's not time. Don't miss the fact that this is so important, that as he's going through his three-year ministry, there was... Any time along the line that he could have said, all right, I'm ready to be king. I'm just going to set it up right now and be king. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He steps back and says, I'm not going to be king now. I know that I will be king one day. And I'm going to go all the way to the cross. So here's the first reason I want you to see that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Instead of you know, taking the easy way out, instead of setting up the kingdom right there, this is the first reason, first reason Jesus is worthy of our worship. He was fully submissive to the Father's will. And that means not taking the easy way out and setting up the kingdom right now, but instead dismissing the people saying, I am king, but it's not time. I'm going to be submissive to the will of the Father, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die for the sins of the world and be resurrected. Then I'll set up my kingdom. 
The Father has said that that is His will, and I am going to do that. I'm not going to just set up the kingdom now. So the first reason that Jesus is um, worthy of our worship, because at any time He wanted, He could have set up the kingdom, and He didn't, because He wanted to save sinners. He wanted to save you. He wanted to go to the cross for you. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says that He went to the cross with joy. He desired to see us know Him and be saved by His His work on the cross. That was the death we should have died. He was willing to go and die for us and we get to have life. So he dismisses them immediately. Now, that's one of the reasons. It's because they wanted to make him king and he's like, it's not yet time. It's not yet time. But another reason that he dismisses them pretty fast is because we can see in 23, and after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountains by himself to pray. So the other reason, obviously, is night's on its way and he wants to pray. He wants alone time with the Father. He actually wanted this before. If you remember, at the very end, um, it says that he withdrew, and it says that in fourteen thirteen, he withdrew from there for, to a desolate place. He wanted to go be by himself. Fourteen thirteen tells us, and so he crossed the, the uh, sea. And as he's crossing it, those disciples ran all the way around the water. And as he pulled up to the shore, they're like waiting on him. Hey, Jesus, we just saw you. Um, and so, like, instead of taking the break there. He feeds them all, and now he really wants to rest. So he sends them out, and he sends the disciple across, and then he finally goes, and he has some alone time, and he has prayer time. And it says here uh, that he went, in 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So we know that Christ is finally getting this this time for, for him to pray. And it says, when evening came, so we, now it's, we know it's really getting late in the day, it's probably somewhere around 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and it says, when evening came, he was there alone. Now, alone is interesting because we know he's with his father. You know, he's, he's, he's communing with the father and he's, he's in prayer. For Jesus, prayer meant refreshment time. Prayer meant his delight. It meant that he finally gets to be with the father. Now, we don't know what he's praying for, but I, I can't help but think he's thanking the Lord that he just fed almost 20,000 people. And he's also praying for the disciples whom he just sent out. We're going to get into that, that troubled circumstance that he just sent them out. But he sent them out into a bit of a trial. And so he's there uh, praying. And it says in verse 24, But the boat by this time, so he's there alone, but the boat by this time was a, long, was a long way. Now, we don't know really how much a long way is. But again, as I said, this is shown to us in other texts as well. And John, again, is going to be the man and tell us uh, exactly how far it is. And he tells us in John uh, chapter 6, verse 19, it says, And when they had rowed about three or four miles, that's when they saw Jesus walking on the sea. So we know back over here in verse 24 when it says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. They had rowed about three or four miles out into the water. So that's pretty far. Think about, I mean, that's pretty far, not necessarily when it comes to how long they had been out there, but if you're going to walk to them on water, three or four miles is a pretty long way to start walking on water. So that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and Jesus says, when, when the boat was a long way off in the land, and then notice what it says, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Beaten by the waves. So this means that this is a very stormy situation. It's not just kind of like, Y'all cruise on out there. It's going to be nice tonight. Maybe you can do some skiing. Hope the water's nice. He sends them out there into a very stormy situation. All right? 
he doesn't just know that it's going to be stormy. He doesn't just know that it's going to, it doesn't take him by surprise that it's going to be that way, but he actually sends them out into that. And Matthew's already told us that he is the Lord over all creation. He's the Lord over it. And so he's knowingly sending them out into a storm that he has sovereignly created himself and sending them out there. And so we know that it says in verse 25, and in the fourth watch, the fourth watch of the night was around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., very late. Now, I said that Jesus went to pray about 8 p.m., which means two things. Number one, uh, that they had been out there in the stormy, horrible situation for about six or seven hours. This is a very long time to be out at sea. Um, and they only got about three miles. And I'm not like a, uh, a nautical master, but I'm pretty sure that to go... Three miles in about six hours isn't making great time. But at the same time, while they're out there and Jesus knowingly sends them out into this, as a matter of fact, he's the one that sends them out into those circumstances. He is praying for about six or seven hours peacefully (laughs) with the Father. So the first thing I want to show us is this. When we think about him sending people out into these circumstances, as a matter of fact, these are circumstances that that don't... they don't just, you know, like take, they don't take him by surprise, but he created those things and knowingly sends them out. Hurry up, hurry up, get out there because I've created a storm for you. Six or seven hours, y'all have fun. Um, here's the second reason that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, this is key, all right? I, I'm not trying to allegorize the text too much, but there's something to note here that Jesus is sending them out into a storm, sending them out into trial, sending them out into difficult circumstances that don't take him by surprise that he actually created, not so that they'll say, oh, we're so scared, what's going on? How come he sent us out here? But instead, whenever we know that he is the one who created those circumstances around us, what he wants our right response to be is not to be freaking out and say, why is this going on? But instead to be pressing into him and saying, Lord, these trials are difficult, and the only hope I have right now is for you to come and be right beside me and be in this. So... um, The second reason that Jesus is worthy of worship is because he is sovereign over theirs, this storm they're in, and your circumstances. When I say sovereign, I mean he's not just aware of your trials, but he is the author and creator of these trials. And he does this not because he's mad with you or upset with you, but instead he does this because what he wants for you to do is to press more deeply into him. He's the God of all comfort. And he wants you to know him in that way. And so the second reason that he's worthy of worship is because he is the, since he's the author of these circumstances, he's the only one that you can retreat to. He's the only one that you can go to for comfort in these trials and these circumstances. And so we know, as I said, this fourth watch is going on. Um, And so by that little fact, we know that the disciples are taking this really, really long time to get across this water because there's a storm. They've gone about three to four miles in about six or seven hours. And Jesus is spending about six or seven hours in prayer, which is amazing. Six or seven hours in prayer. And this is a refreshment time for him. And so, I mean, obviously, the the smartest takeaway I can say from this is six or seven hours in prayer and and time with the Lord and communion with God the Father shouldn't be something that says... That, that you say, that's just too daunting. That's just too much of a task. There's no way I can do that. This, if it's good for Jesus, then it is absolutely good for you. Take a day a week or a day a month or whatever. Go somewhere by yourself. Take your Bible and just spend time reading, spend time in prayer. It is going to be absolutely just tremendous for your soul for you to do that. 
Jesus had huge tasks going on. He, he had the mission that he had to go to the Gentiles. He had the cross before him. And he knows with those huge circumstances in my life, the only thing I can do is have this time of respite that I can be with the God the Father. And so for us as well, Jesus knows he must pray before he goes to these things that we would ne- we need to know that we need to go to the Lord for prayer for everything as well. Now, the irony of this is that the two scenarios are that the disciples are being tossed about. They're fearful for their life. Everything's crazy. They've only gone three miles. They're scared to death. I can even just imagine six. I mean, 15 minutes. I'm done in that kind of storm. I'm done. I'm throwing up everywhere anyway because I'm car sick. But like, I'm just done. Six or seven hours they're spending tossing and turning while Jesus is just a nice peacefully communing with the Father. I, I find that amazing. But um, Spurgeon, as he's kind of commenting on this situation and how it applies to our life, that they are in the, in the worst part and, and everything's crazy and it's a bad trial and circumstance. And Jesus here, he says, one fact remains. Jesus is pleading on the shore, though we are struggling on the sea. Jesus is praying. He is praying. And so this just recalls for us, Romans eight thirty four that he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. You need to know that in your toughest circumstances, that Christ is on the throne at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for those that are his. Your trial is not taking him by surprise. He is. He is there for you. He is praying for you. So here we see they're walking, uh, or the fourth watch of the night, and then it says, and he came to them walking on the sea, walking on the sea. As I've already said, he was about three or four miles away and it's very stormy. So this is just amazing. I mean, a man is walking on water. It's not like he just kind of did it for a couple seconds, like he ran really fast or something. Um, he's walking on water for a couple miles in really rough terrain, if you will. Like, I don't know how it is to walk on water when it's really stormy. But I imagine that's really tough. And Jesus is just doing that, doing this for about three or so miles. And then in Mark, in Mark's gospel, whenever the, he's talking about this in the fourth night, watch of the night, walking on the sea, Mark throws in this little, this little extra phrase that Matthew does. And he says, and he meant to pass them by. Now, um, one, <laughs> one commentator, I love this. this. This is ridiculous, but I love it. One commentator, when he's commenting on that Mark section, he says, the reason why Mark says, and he meant to pass them by is, he says, in his humanity, Jesus was just enjoying this new experience of walking on the water so much, he wanted to go beside the disciples to show that he was making better progress than them. Like, look at me, y'all stink, y'all been out forever, I'm just marching right past you. I don't think that this new crazy experience is like, like, whoa, this is awesome. I think really it's just probably just to get their attention. He's walking by them, he's trying to pass by them so they'll see him. He wants them to see that he's there because he wants this next thing to take place. But we see this, what happens, um... They do see him. And so it says, he's walking on the sea and he's, he passes by him. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. This is a right response. I mean, 3 a.m. in the morning and you see somebody walking on the water. It's completely appropriate for every single one of us to be absolutely terrified. And they were. They were, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. Um, this word ghost in the Greek is phantasma or it comes from the word phantom. And so for us, that's where we get our our English word phantom. And so when they see and they scream out, it's a ghost, they're not thinking, oh, it's Casper. What's going on? Maybe he wants to say hey to us. When they see 
It's a ghost. It's a phantasma. Their immediate thoughts are that phantom wants to kill us. We're all going to die right now. So they're abs- that's why they're terrified, because they believe absolutely that they're about to die. And then it says, and they cried out in fear. Now, I'm not a, uh, a Hebrew Aramaic scholar, but I imagine something to what they said right here when they cried. It was, ah, something like that. Um, it, that word, ah, translates from English to Aramaic. This is the same word all over. But they see this phantasma, this this ghost, if you will, and they're absolutely scared to death. They're freaking out crazy. They're screaming because they see this apparition at 3 a.m. walking on the water. They don't know what it is. They think this thing is going to come kill them, and they scream out. Now, a note, notice this, because I said these immediately that Matthew point, that puts are absolutely important. Jesus isn't some sadistic guy. He just kind of stands there and just lets them keep yelling. Ha ha! Listen to y'all. Y'all are so scared. Yell again. Yell again. But it's, it says, um, it says in verse 27, it says, they cried out in fear, but immediately jesus so he sees their fear and he i mean obviously he he had to have known they're going to get afraid but as soon as they start crying out he immediately addresses it he's not he's not a reason a reason to be fearful of him and it says immediately jesus spoke to them saying now this phrase this phrase is amazing he says take heart it is i do not be afraid take heart it is i be courage be courageous you don't need to worry it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, it's not, it's not present in our English language. And so I want you to know what's going on here. What he's actually saying when he says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. The it is I um, in the Greek is ego amy. That's I am. Take heart, I am, don't be afraid. In other words, He's claiming, if you, if you know from Exodus 3.14, this is the name where God tells Moses, when he says, who should I say sent me? He says, tell him I am sent you. Tell him God sent you. He calls himself God, the I am, the Yahweh, the I am. So this is Jesus clearly claiming deity. So when they're freaking out, thinking they're going to die, he says to them, don't be afraid. God's right here. There's no reason to be afraid. God is on the water with you right now. God is all up in the middle of your trouble circumstance. And so when you are in your trial, when you are in your circumstance, when you're in that that desperate time, that difficult time, he's saying, don't worry. God is here right now. There is no trial where God is not present with you. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I am is here. God is here. And so the third reason that Jesus is absolutely worthy of our worship right here and all over the new testament he claims it all over the new testament jesus is worthy of worship because he equates himself with god when he calls himself i am this is an absolute statement of him saying i am the i am the yahweh spoken of in exodus three fourteen. i am god and i am here and i am present you have nothing to be fearful about whenever god is there you can absolutely take this advice when it says take heart do not be afraid there's nothing to be afraid of. So he's worthy of, his, of worship because he is God. Now, um, verse 28 starts something new for us. As I said, Matthew and Mark and John all have this story of him walking on the water. But Mark and John don't include this part. Just Matthew has Peter walking on the, on the water, this whole story. And I think that this takes kind of a... This text seems to take a big weird shift because... The narrative is, is very like, 
They're fearful. They're seeing ghosts. There's storms everywhere. They're screaming. I'm not going to scream in. And they're, they're freaking out. And Peter, you know, they're, they're wondering what's going on. And all of a sudden, um, they hear this voice saying, take heart, it is I. And everybody's scared. And all of a sudden, Peter's like, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus, <laughs> you're out on the water. Can I come out there with you? I don't have any reason to be afraid anymore. Can I? I mean, it just seems like everybody's scared. And all of a sudden, hey, it's Jesus. Let me come out there with you. That looks like fun. It feels like a little child. Hey, that looks fun. I want to do it. And so, amazingly, in verse 29, um, actually, uh, in, in, in 28, where it says, And Peter's answered him, Lord, if it is you, this, this if can also be translated since. And so it's not like, if it's you, I'm wondering, but it's since it's you, God, Lord, since, since this is you, command me to come out on the water. I want to come. And, and amazingly, Jesus says, well, come on, let's, let's do it. Verse 29, it says, come. So now we need to stop here because this is, this is pretty important. Um, we're going to see for the rest of this kind of a, uh, within Peter, just Peter, a dichotomy of Peter. It's just a, a comparison of Peter's faith where it is great at one point, and then Jesus is going to call it little faith. All right? But right here we're seeing tremendous faith being exercised by Peter, where it says, come, and he says, so Peter got out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat. Um, this getting out of the boat, remember, there's a storm going everywhere. It's not like Peter has this. These are Peter's options. Walk on water, sink and die. It's not like the third one was, if I can't sink, I'm just going to tread water and, and get back in. It, the, there's storms going everywhere. I mean, it's crazy. And so as soon as he gets out of the boat, it's either he's going to walk or he's going to die. That's it. Um, and so it says here, so he, he exercises great faith. Peter got out of the boat, and look at this, walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, I don't know how far away Jesus was from the boat. We know Jesus walked probably about three or four miles there's the boat, and he's passing them by. He's enjoying this experience. And so Peter sees me like, hey, let me come out there. And so Peter walks on water. We don't know how far, but we do know this. For as long as Peter was his, the object of his faith, where he's exercising faith, the object, was, as long as he's looking forward at Christ, as long as he's doing that, he's walking on water. J- Peter clearly walks on water for a while, all the way up to Jesus. Now, the thing that happens is he takes his view off the object of his faith, Jesus, and puts it on the circumstances around him. As soon as he takes his eyes off of Christ and on his circumstances, it goes bad. There's a lot in there, right? As soon as we take our eyes off of Christ and our circumstances, it goes bad. Well, this is what happens. He looks at the wind and says, um, so Peter got out of the boat and he walked towards the water and he came towards Jesus right here. But when he saw the wind... When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out. So this wind is the difficult circumstance here that's going on. And immediately he began to sink. Immediately he began to sink. Spurgeon, this Spurgeon's so awesome. He notes such tremendous things. So he's getting closer. And as he gets closer, he takes his eyes off Jesus. He looks at the wind and it begins to sink. And that's when Jesus comes to him. And his worst time, he's about to sink. Spurgeon says... Peter was nearer to the Lord in proximity when he was sinking than when he was walking. So the moment you you don't think in your worst of trial, like right when it's about to hit the worst place that it's bad, but that's when Jesus is closest. And so um, when the trial started for Peter, Jesus was right there with him. And so he's walking out there. And so here's what happens. The object of Peter's faith, 
the object of Peter's faith was Jesus, and all of a sudden it became the wind, and that's when it goes down. Now, to Peter's credit here, whenever he starts sinking, he knows immediately what to do. He doesn't, you know, try to swim. He doesn't try to tread water. He doesn't flail about crazy. The only option he has is <laughs> cry out to Jesus. That's all I got. I'm about to die. And that's why I said before, when he gets out, it's death or, 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 or walk on the water. And, of course, here's, here's the thing where it says... Um, he was beginning to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. His, his cry is a natural cry, but it's, and Jesus rescues him. And this rescuing of Jesus, that, that he, sink, he reaches out and grabs Peter and pulls him back up, is absolutely comparative to our salvation. Peter's cry comes whenever he sees his absolute need, and he calls out to Jesus to save him. And this is exactly how the gospel works for us. We're not saved until we understand our absolute need. We need to see that we are desperately lost, that we are wretched sinners, and that we have absolutely no hope to be saved, to have right standing, to be rescued. We have no hope of forgiveness of our sin. And once we realize that, then we call out to Christ. This is a, a, a quote from Thomas Watson. He says this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so there's this, just like Peter had a had a, a clear understanding that whenever things got bad, that's when I have to call out, but I have to see that the circumstances are bad. In the gospel, we have to see that we are sinners until we see that sin is bitter and we have a hatred for it and we see that it's awful. That's when we call it to Christ. Until we see sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. But once we see sin is bitter and we say we don't want it and we cry out like Peter, Lord, save me, Christ becomes sweet. The gospel becomes sweet and we're saved by him. And so we see here that he says, Lord, Save me. So here's the fourth reason why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of worship because he is the only one who can save. Peter had no other hope. The only hope he had was Christ. And all of us, in our salvation, the only hope we have is Christ. And, and so, listen, don't miss this. Since he is the only one that can save you, the only one that can save you from your sin, he is absolutely worthy of worship. He's worthy of your worship. If you're in Christ, you must worship. And so, <clears throat> this is pretty amazing as well. After he said, Lord, save me, look at this. Again, immediately. Jesus didn't let him figure it out, didn't make him learn his lesson. Because he, he looked at something else that says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. He immediately reached out and took hold of him. And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And so Jesus immediately saves. And so when we call out, Lord, save me, he immediately saves. I don't have much time, but there's so many parallels to the story of Peter in the water and Jonah. Whenever they're both have winds and storms around them, they know that they're about to go down and they cry out for the Lord for salvation. Lord, save me. And Jonah 2.9, I think it's 2.9, where it says the Lord is the Lord of salvation. One commentator says Jonah 2.9 is the central point of the, the central verse of the entire bible god is the god who saves and so this is what's going on here jesus saves him he pulls him up and this is very much applicable to our faith or, or to our life and whenever we're saved by christ and then it says oh you of little faith oh you of little faith so i want to talk about what this little faith means i've already kind of hinted towards what little faith means little faith um is not used to tell us about the measure of peter's faith Peter, is your, is your faith really big or small? Well, it, 
that's a subjective thing to understand. But maybe the better way of understanding what little and what great faith is, is to understand what's the object of our faith. Is what we're looking at, is it great or is what we're looking at little? If we're looking at circumstances and we take our eyes off what's great, then we have little faith. But if we look at what is great, namely Christ, then we have great faith. So great faith is not dependent upon you, but on the object of your faith. Great faith is dependent upon the object. Great faith is dependent upon Christ. And Christ is great. And so if the object of your faith is put towards Jesus, then you definitely have great faith. And that's what he's trying to say. Why did you, why did you um, doubt? You should have remained looking at me and you would have had great faith. Now, what I want to do here is just take one little, uh, one little moment to explain what we talk about with faith. Because we know the Bible teaches us that it's faith that saves. And so what do we mean by the word faith? Theologians over the last 2,000 years have kind of talked about the way to understand faith with three little categories. And this is important because sometimes we misunderstand faith. If we say, believe in God, does that just mean believe that God exists? And if you just believe that God exists, that you're saved, that's not what we're talking about. Faith is more than just a, an understanding of facts or just an ascension or an agreement that those facts might be true. That's not what faith is. There's something more. So let's talk about that. It's certainly knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's revealed himself as the Son of God. It's knowing that. It's also believing that he can save us from our sin. But there's more to it. It's also faith is committing. Faith is trusting our lives to him. It's, it's all three. The way, the, the way they've explained this is this. Um, they've used three little Latin words. One is notitia. And it just means that's the... the uh, the content, that's faith's content. That's, a, that's understanding and knowing that Jesus is, the content of my faith is that there's this man named Jesus and I believe that he's the son of God. The second word is a census or um, assenting to the truth, agreeing. And that's saying, okay, knowing that, he's, that Jesus is the son of God, I believe that he can save me from our sin. But again, the last one is fiducia. And that is actual trust. Those are the three Latin words that, that theologians have talked about what faith is. But fiducia is actual trust in Jesus as the Son of God. It's committing your life to Him. So here's what, what I mean. If someone says, in order to be a Christ follower, you need to believe in God, you need to believe in Jesus, you don't just say, okay, I believe that God exists, and I believe that a man named Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. I believe those things to be true. I'm in agreement. Those things are necessary, but that's not salvific faith that's not faith that saves what is salvific faith is saying based on those things therefore i totally commit my entire life to him i trust him with my entire soul i give him everything i believe in him i trust in him i put my faith in him i give him every part of my life that is salvific faith that is the faith that saves it's not just believing and agreeing in facts it's also saying, based on those things, God, I believe in you, and here's my life. I'm going to actually trust you with my entire life. This is the faith that God is calling for. So when we see this, this dichotomy of faith with Peter, this great belief like getting out of the boat and then him having an object of faith where he's called little faith, the faith that God wants is this act of trust and act of committing of your life to him. And this is what happens, all right? Notice this, what happens. Um, we would think that so far we've kind of seen what is the greatest part of the text, the pinnacle of the text. But as I've said, 
32 and 33 is the pinnacle of the text. Notice what it says. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. (laughs) Now, if we read that really fast, we're going to miss something pretty amazing. Peter walked out to Jesus with the storm. Storm's going. Peter walks out to Jesus. Storm's going crazy. He doesn't look at Jesus anymore. He looks at the wind. He starts falling. Jesus gets him. But they're not by the boat. And the storm is still going. And it says when they got to the boat, the storm ceased. So clearly this means that he took Peter and they both walked together again on water through the storm. Walks him back. Just to highlight for us that Jesus absolutely walks us through to its very end our trials and circumstances. He, he walks Peter through all the difficult circumstances that are going on. And it's the same thing. Jesus is there all the way to the end of those trials. Takes him all the way back. And once they get in the boat, the wind ceases. This is what it says. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those that were in the boat worship him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now, um, it's been, like I said, like 18 years since we looked uh, at chapter 8. So I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's probably been 18 months or I don't know. It's been a while. But what I, <laughs> what I want you all to see is this. Um, these particular two verses are so similar to what we've already seen when Jesus calms the storm. I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 8, Jesus calms the storm. Remember, it's a big, crazy storm, and Jesus is taking a nap, and they're like freaking out. We're all going to die. Wake up. And he's like, what's wrong with y'all? Be still. And there's doom. And they're like, this is crazy. That's just crazy. Like, that's what's going on. So this, they sound similar. Look, and it says, and when they got into the boat, this is verse 32, uh, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you're the Son of God. Now listen to this. Listen to how many similar things that are said in verses 32 and 33 in chapter 14 that are said in chapter 8, 23 through 27. Chapter 8, 23 through 27. Look at this. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And look, and when they woke up, they said, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Peter just screamed, Lord, save me. And then it says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He just said to Peter, Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? And then it says, Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And it says right here, And as soon as he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then, verse 27 of chapter 8, the disciples ask a question. They say, the the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And then 28, by the way, just says, And when they came to the other side, question asked, no answer given. Chapter 8, 27, the disciples put forward a question. Question asked by the disciples. Notice they get, they're the ones that answer. Question asked by the disciples in 827. Question answered by the disciples in 1433 when they got in the boat and worshiped, saying, truly you are the son of God. So what's the answer? Matthew's painstakingly trying to use the same language so we, we can make sure that we see the connection here. When they ask the question, what sort of man is this that these winds and seas obey him? Disciples ask, disciples answer it themselves. Truly you are the son of God. He answers that question a couple chapters later. And the readers, he wants us to see that. He wants us to see that. Now, this, as I said, is the pinnacle of the text because there's some amazing firsts right here in verse 33. And this is what's showing us that it's all about worship. 
Here, I want you to see this. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the first time the disciples have addressed Jesus with this full title. They've called him other things. They've called him um, Master and Teacher and Lord. But they've never said, You are the Son of God. So this is a first. This is a huge title for them to say, The Son of God. They are saying, You are deity. And this is all pushing forward to that major declaration in 1616 where Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. So this is a little hint towards that 1616. But also, not only is that a first where they give him this first title, son of God, but also in 33 it says, and those in the boat worshipped him. This is the first time that Matthew has described the disciples. They've marveled, they've been stunned, they've been amazed, but they have never, according to up to now, worshipped They see this miracle. They say, you're the son of God. And their only response is, proskuneo, get down on my face and worship and kiss the king and be absolutely amazed at who this man is. He is the one who is worthy of worship. And I want you to notice here that worship is tied to confession. Right understanding of who Jesus is. You're the son of God. The right response that comes after that 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 understanding of who jesus is creates the proper response which is now you are worthy of worship and you deserve my worship and it says those in the boat worshiped him saying truly you are the son of god they recognized who he is that understanding and then the right response came so confession and then response they knew who he was and they responded they worshiped him so the big question i think for us is this what has god done in your life over however old you are, that would make you respond this way. In light of Christ's death, burial, and burial and resurrection, would we rightly say, truly you are the Son of God, and would we rightly worship Him because He's the one who's worthy of our worship? Here's the fifth reason that Jesus is worthy of, of our worship, and it comes right out of the verse 33, the declaration of the disciples. Jesus is worthy of our worship because He is the Son of God. It's not just that he equates himself to be the Son of God like we saw when he said, it is I. He is the Son of God. He is worthy of, he is God himself. The final response of the disciples was to worship Jesus. The final response of us should be the same. Now as we go into this next little section, um, we're going to briefly go through this. We're going to see it. It says in verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land called Gener. Gennesaret. And this is a little bit of a taste of what's going on. Gennesaret was full of Gentiles. Jesus is going to go mix in and kind of rub shoulders with the Gentiles. Those who were Jewish, we're going to see in chapter 15, are like, what are you doing with the Gentiles? You're getting unclean. What's the matter with you? And so that leads us into why they get crazy and how they're defiled. But the main thing I want you to see here is when, in verse 35, it says, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to all the, they sent all around to all the region and they brought to him all who were sick and they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Fringe of his garment, by the way, is how the woman who was issued, had the issue of blood was healed in Matthew 9. And so the same way that they were healed here is the same way that she was healed. And so what we see here is that Jesus is willingly going into a land that had unclean people and he takes time to be with them and heals them. And this is the story of his life. Jesus leads all the glory that he has in heaven. 
He comes down to be with the people who are unclean. He takes time with them that he might heal them both physically and one, and, and one day spiritually as he goes to the cross for them. We are these sick people. And we need to see that we're the ones that say, Jesus, come. We need you to come. We need to declare like Peter where we say, Lord, save me. I recognize my absolute need for you. I need to be healed just like these people. Just let me touch the fringe of your garment. Let me just know who you are and put my my life committing faith in you because of your work on the cross, the fact that you died for me, the fact that, the fact that you were resurrected and that you conquered Satan, sin, and death. And now I can walk in newness of life. I can be forgiven based on the fact, these true statements about you. I'm going to confess, just like the disciples, that Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. And I want to respond just like the disciples. I want to be the one who's saying, you're worthy of my worship. I want to fall down on my face and proskuneo worship you, Jesus. I want to give you my life. So that's our response. This is exactly what he wants us to see right now. We, we don't need to take our time and think. I, he's shown to us right here in the scriptures who he is. He is the son of God. And so what we're going to do now, we are going to, just like the disciples, confess, understand that, and respond. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship. We're going to proskuneo. We're going to come forward and bow down and kiss the king and sing out to him in our, in our worship and respond. Because we've seen here in the text that he is absolutely worthy of our worship. He's the only one who can save us. He is God. He was willing to go and do all of the Father's will all the way to the cross. And he is absolutely sovereign over every single circumstance in our life. He's worthy of our worship. So we're going to stand. And based on that, we're going to be just like the disciples. And we're going to worship as well. So let's stand and I'm going to pray. And then we'll worship. Let's stand. Lord, thank you so much for this time where we can come here and we can sing out to you and we can worship. Thank you that we can look into your word and you can tell us who you are. Because the Holy Spirit carried along men as they wrote this, as you've told us. In Second Peter, the Holy Spirit is the one who carried along these men as they wrote. And so these are your words. And so we have seen Christ as supreme. We have seen Christ as the king, worthy of our worship, sovereign over every one of our circumstances, the only one that can save. And we, like Peter, say, Lord, save us. And we want to say, you are the son of the living God. You are the one who des- deserves all of our worship. And we want to worship you just like the disciples. Be with us now as we worship through song corporately. May it be a sweet time of response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.